You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Last week, I went to see a film called Alien Intrusion. Here's a little sample from the trailer. Now, I'm a science fiction fan, and I can tell you the truth is out there, but it's a lot stranger than any science fiction. It's claimed that over 20 million Americans have seen a UFO. The Roper poll concluded that up to 4 million Americans had been abducted by aliens. I've been involved in the development of space vehicles for exploration for over 60 years. You know, there are massive problems with the idea that advanced aliens can simply warp themselves around the galaxy. The Starship Enterprise travels at multiple factors of light speed. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and this week we're going to be talking about a film that I saw last week called Alien Intrusion, and how it relates to something called the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis. In the interview that follows, you're going to hear a discussion with Joe Laycock, Natasha Mickles, and Jeb Card, all of whom have been on Monster Talk before. Joe and Natasha teach religious studies, and we've had them on to discuss tulpas in relationship to the Slender Man, and we had on Joe to talk about uh, Satanism and the Satanic Panic and Dungeons and Dragons, and we've had Jeb on to talk about fairies with our archaeological fantasies crossover. Anyway, you'll recognize their voices, I believe, if you're a regular listener, and their discussion we're about to have is about ultra-terrestrials, John Keel, the Paranormal Unified Field Theory, and this film, Alien Intrusion, and how it ties in UFOs and demons. It's really quite interesting, and I hope you'll give it a listen. And I want to give a quick thank you to Peter Aller, my friend who joined me to watch this film in preparation for this episode. Monster Talk. All right, so welcome to Monster Talk again, all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we're here tonight to talk about some things. Uh, it, this is going to be kind of a roundtable discussion. Jeb and I, uh, along with Sharon Hill, have been working on uh, researching something that we're calling... Well, actually, Jeb, why don't you explain what the PUFT is? 
the the puff to the paranormal unified field theory. Yeah, I think we're going to come back to it again and again. But basically, wrestling with the idea that all sorts of things that people put into what academics might call the cultic milieu, which include conspiracy theory as well as words like occult, paranormal, et cetera. And I'm probably not the person to talk about this in this conversation, but um, that people would talk about as being paranormal are all increasingly in the community that's very interested in such topics interlinked. Yeah. And it's a thing that I'm interested in. And we, when we went to CryptidCon, we, we saw very firsthand. And it's a thing I've been talking about a lot. And then I, I think I finally all convinced you all that it really was a thing um after seeing it there with dogman and whatnot yeah so yeah the the michigan dogman um and other aspects of the paranormal that don't fit into the uh flesh and blood meat and bones uh sort of aspect yeah. of things and this is that this is not new because no. even really early on in the ufo world there was a a, a, a split and I, I say ufos first because that sort of predates bigfoot it uh, doesn't really predate the Yeti, but it does predate Bigfoot. There was a split between the uh, UFOs are f- real physical craft and UFOs are some sort of ultra-dimensional or, or trans-dimensional uh, phenomena. And I guess the guy who really focused on the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis, in fact, who gave it that name, is John Keel. He doesn't invent it. He doesn't invent the concept. And honestly, I think we're probably going to back work into the roots of this in – all right. So if you listen to the show that I'm usually on, Archaeological Fantasies, we generally have two drinking game words. One is Victorian. <laughs> Take a drink. And the other is Theosophy. Mm. And I'm about to say both. Um, so I just did. Uh, what's that? That we have drinks in hands. <laughs> All right. So why don't we introduce – why don't we talk about – let's bring in the other people on this because I, I guarantee – because I'm just going to say this straight out. One, y'all's discussion of tulpas, which are very tied into this on Monster Talk, was astonishing. And also it appears to have made it on the X-Files, which is pretty amazing. That is awesome. Life <laughs> goal unlocks. Yeah. Yeah. No, very much. Well, let me, uh, let me explain why I invited Joe and Natasha on. Uh, it's because – uh, in in conjunction with this research I've been doing uh, to help Jeb on an article that he's working on, uh, I, I synchronistically uh, had a friend point me to this uh, theater event that was happening called Alien Intrusion. And I looked into it and within about five minutes realized that this was not a UFO documentary. This was a, a religious documentary. Well, it is a UFO documentary. Well, it is. I would say it's just kind of the point. Right. It is. It is a uh, – well, in fact, we'll get to that. But because of the fact that it looked to me like they were basically saying that UFOs were a uh, demonological phenomena. I thought that there was a good chance it might tie in with this ultra terrestrial hypothesis stuff, and so I went to watch the film. And after, and even before I went to watch the film, I reached out to Joe because uh, being so this a, is a film in theaters, it, uh, right? It was a special event, uh, Fathom Events hosted. Uh, so it's like a one night simulcast across yeah. many theaters. And so you saw it in the theater, and Joe and Natasha, I believe you saw it in the theater. It was it was one night only. How could we resist? That's right. Yeah. So, so I I am going to be the. This is a horrifying position for everybody involved. I guess I'm going to be the audience proxy because I have not seen this. I've looked into it. I've seen the guest list or the speakers list, but I have not seen this. So I will probably be asking questions I, about I, this. I, I'm the. 
I'm the far end of that spectrum. I've lived this. So when I was growing up, my mother told me not to be afraid of UFOs or aliens because uh, Lucifer is the lord of the air and could make all things appear to be something that they're not. And basically, that it's much more likely that uh, it's demons than, than physical aliens from another planet. And that was really, seriously, the hypothesis of this film. So. Yeah. So, they, so it did go straight up demons. They, oh, absolutely. And, and I don't want to get into it quite yet. Yeah, I'm just... Yeah, I just, yeah. No, but, yeah. but Joe right. and Natasha, both being religious studies people, both being very familiar with the, uh, the field uh, and having a much deeper knowledge of, of religious studies than I have. I mean, I've only got sort of the evangelical Christian view uh, and uh, the lightest uh, understanding of other religions. So I thought it would be helpful to have them to give us some context. So I really appreciate you guys joining us and for attending the film because it gives you absolutely the best position to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the way that they did this, as you were saying, Fathom looks like they were set up if, you know, there's a, a Broadway show and you want to watch it at a movie theater live. Uh, and so using that as their distributor, it, it, whatever audience there would be, it seems that it just got split up across because multiple movie theaters in, in Austin were showing it. When we went, there were less than a dozen people in the audience. A good portion of them seemed to be UFO buffs who walked out in anger. Really? Um, about halfway yeah. through it. And I looked today on the IMDb page for this film and in the trivia, it actually says lots of people walked out of this film <laughs> because they didn't know it was religious. And Natasha uh, also got pretty restless and got up during the film and actually saw uh, an audience member berating the poor guy taking tickets. Oh, God. Movie. Oh God. Natasha, what can you remember from that conversation? Um, so he was out talking to the, the, young, the young guy taking tickets and was just saying that, well, I guess I should have researched this film better, but shame on you guys for showing this. And this poor kid is, you know, he doesn't make these decisions. Right. He should <laughs> take some tickets. Um, and then he kept saying, you know, I want to go out and get a breath of fresh air, uh, but I don't have my ticket to return. Um, you know, he's like, I think I need to go take a walk. Uh, and he seemed very, very agitated. And I was actually in the search of trying to uh, get myself a, a water or something. Because by this point, the movie had been going on for about two hours. Uh, and at this point, it was just beating us over the head with... Uh, uh, New Testament uh, verses and different things from Paul's letters. So wow. it's very so long. It would have been a great one-hour sort of presentation. I think. I mean, you could have made the case in an hour, but they stretched it out to two, and then had like a Q and A afterwards. Oh, um, yeah, a Q and A. Yeah, so, like there were people from the film, sort of the company or or whatever. Right. right. It, but oh it was, wow! It was, it, was, it was a. It was definitely a bait and switch. Um, I think which the the yeah. first IMDb review that shows up the title is I feel lied to with lied to being all caps which is why I I put a little more volume behind that yeah I I do now the bait and switch evangelical approach has has been around for a long time I mean I remember many times when I was a kid going to the fair and they'd have like free puppet show and you know it's a puppet show but it is definitely a evangelical you know conversion puppet show. Um, <laughs> I've so, also done that to get anthropology majors, but yeah. Continue. <laughs> I remember in, in college there was a free comedy night, and it was a evangelical bait and switch. Yeah, I don't. I that's kind of like it's almost like a pious fraud, you know. 
<laughs> it's 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 not it, like quite faking a miracle, but it, it is it is a little bit deceptive. And uh, I, which is, by the way, literally the the subtitle of the movie. It is alien intrusion unmasking a deception. Well, surprise! I got one of the deceptions for you. <laughs> Narrated by John Schneider, one of the two dudes from the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, that was also interesting because John Schneider now does something called Faith Works Productions and is sort oh, yeah? of been born again. But he did not introduce himself as Bo Duke from Dukes of Hazard. He introduced himself as uh, Clark Kent's dad from the show Smallville. That's right. Interesting. That's, That's right. right. Yeah, trying yeah. to go after the uh, the sci-fi crowd. Yeah, and, and also just people who are you know younger than a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let me tell you a different view of the audience. My theater sold out two auditoriums, and it was really? almost entirely church groups where everybody knew everybody. Everybody was like, hey, brother so-and-so, and hey, sister so-and-so. So there was um, there was a, a real sense that I had walked into a church service. And, and, and before the movie started, there were a lot of uh, uh, advertisements about uh, – creation ministries it was really a and the narrator or not the narrator but the, the director of the show is from australia so he wasn't ken ham but there is a strong what the i know I'm just yeah, it just kind of thank surprised you for me immediately go where my mind went thank you yeah no exactly it wasn't ken ham but it was yet another uh, strong australia uh, anti-evolutionary <sighs> thing and i wish karen was here to defend her country <laughs> yeah. well, Christian Ministries had an, uh, a nasty breakup with Ken Ham in 2006, and the reasons for this are not entirely clear, but there's a lot online if you want to uh, dig into that breakup that I, happened. Was it a secret anti-chin beard sort of movement? That- <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That's, that's har- harsh but fair. It's, By the way, he uh, does not have like they sell a little pamphlet about UFOs at the so pretty much if you go to the Creation Museum, all the stuff they sell text wise is theirs, which surprised me when I went there. I have not been to the Ark Encounter, but in the Creation Museum, and they do have a tiny little pamphlet on UFOs, and they don't do the demonology thing. They actually have a largely skeptical perspective that basically says sightings are probably blah 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 mistakes. And the idea of aliens reifies evolution. Let me just say that a good 70% of the first half of this movie, I know that's a little bit of too much math probably, but uh, the, the predominant uh, uh, content of the first half of the film was about what the UFO phenomena is and why modern day science rejects the idea that physical extraterrestrial craft are traveling from other planets. It could have been put on by Psychop. It, it was yeah. absolutely, you know, bullet pointed the same arguments that most physicists have against the idea that aliens are visiting Earth. But, but they move which on. Which does to, open the way for demons. Which makes, the, they move on to the argument, well, people are seeing something, so what are they seeing? If it's not physical craft, it must be demons. So I mean that there, there's a lot of other things uh, that I would have liked to have them them to included, but the idea that maybe it's misidentified or misunderstood or sleep paralysis, none of those ideas came up. So, how much of it was abduction? Like looking at the IMDb uh, thing, abduction seems to come up a lot. Was a lot of it, which if they're talking about sort of demonological, you know, nocturnal attacks, abduction seems like it would be a big part of it. Is that a big focus in the film? It's a big yes. focus. The second half is all about abduction. Yeah. Because the, the narrator says uh, abductees are the most testable evidence that we have of this phenomenon. Wow. 
Which well, I guess wow. they're cool in the sense that you can bring an abductee to a lab and like yeah. on them. But a lot of ufologists, including you know Jacques Vallée, have said the contactees are the worst evidence. Right, the best yeah. evidence are is ideally a video or something like that, uh, not right. someone who is remembering something under hypnosis. But on the other hand, of course, Valet is also Mr. Aliens or Fairies, which if you want to be away with the fairies and missing time under the hills and, uh, and They so brought on. up fairies, Jeb. You'd have been so proud of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, oh I've, I've made, all the mis- made all the mistakes in my life. Especially the way they use the abductees um, because – it's like they were they were trying to show in the first half or the first two thirds like this is all illogical you know faster than light travel is illogical and you know all this other stuff and then when we got to the abductees there was just so much crying and with like really sad piano keys in the background that music was horrible and it was just it was just this like kind of blatant appeal to emotion it and was, it was telling stories over sad piano interesting yeah yeah, yeah that's very popular. <laughs> Sorry, it's a little in joke there. That's okay. But uh, but so so it was very very like like sort of therapy culture kind of sort of with the ab- which is not an, a new criticism of abduction stuff. Not so much. Uh, they they treated the abductees like they'd had legitimate experiences. They they very politely discussed the uh, common uh, feature of the rectal probes. Um, mm-hmm. And then they it basically came down to if and I. Correct me if I'm oversimplifying this, uh, Natasha or Joe, but I, I think it came down to invoking the name of Jesus Christ repeatedly is the best defense against uh, alien abduction. That's right. And, and, and two of the uh, people in the film uh, are involved in this ministry called Alien Resistance. I think the website yes. is alienresistance.org. They're in there. That's amazing. I've been in their church. Yep. Right across, right? Well, they're not anymore, but they used to be literally across the street from the uh, the UFO Museum in Roswell. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, there's there's a, resistance is fertile. <laughs> nice. That's nice. A, that's, that's good, that's good they, play. Do, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> do they still have as their symbol the sort of no smoking, a.k.a. Ghostbusters, like the red circle? Yes. With the, yes. The, oh, my God. With the alien head, the gray head in the middle. My favorite picture, period, of all, is I went to the 2002 UFO Festival in Roswell, and the Raelians, the group that is basically a contactee, flying saucer, religious, new religious movement, uh, primarily based out of Quebec, although there's a ton of them in Korea. Uh, they were going to speak. Not It wasn't going to be Rael, but it was disciples of his who made their hair and beard look like his, uh, who were going to speak at the International UFO Museum and Research Center, a.k.a. the big museum with a almost as big gift shop attached to it. Um, then at the last minute, their speaking got revoked because they were too weird for the UFO museum, which is a merit badge. But yeah. uh, they were allowed in to the alien resistance storefront church, which at that time existed across the street. And the story behind that is I can't, I know his name is guy. I don't remember his last name, but he was from, I want to say Tennessee in the 1990s. And if you all know the story better, please interrupt me. Uh, in the 1990s, he started having in essence, what would be sort of alien abduction or what a skeptic would say would be sleep paralysis events. Um, but he interpreted them from uh, a born again perspective as demonic attacks. And so he decided, well, where am I going to go into the belly of the beast? He went to Roswell right at sort of the height of all of this and opened up a storefront church 
of a ministry against aliens because he believes they're demons, but they allowed the Raelians who say they don't worship aliens. They say they're atheists, but they kind of worship aliens, <laughs> um, allowed them to come in and speak. And there is a picture that a dude who was, uh, sort of reliving the film six days in Roswell, which is a very interesting film. God of me listening to all of this. And I now have it in every, who am I? Cause I <laughs> don't want to you know, do this lecture at the beginning of semesters. The guy Malone, I, I, I want to say it was Guy Malone. That seems very like a Batman mm-hmm. villain from the 30s, so I wasn't certain, but that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he and, and Joe Jordan, who they said was the MUFON director for South Korea, uh, were Interesting. players in the, in the film. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, and then uh, Jim Suttle from Roswell as well. Wow, yeah. I, I don't know if they're still in Roswell. I know they are no longer in right in front of the museum, but I don't know if they've left Roswell. I get the feeling they're still there. Me too. I saw yeah. some YouTube videos a few years ago of them having sort of an alternate conference at the same time as the big festival. And one of the people in the film spoke there who I don't believe has the same ideology, um, one, uh, one Nick Redford. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know what Nick believes exactly, but I know that he makes his living off of uh, the same sort of topics that I'm interested in and uh, doesn't have the sort of skeptical uh, framework that I do. Um, but he was in the movie quite a bit, and every time Nick Redfern appears, it's moments later we see John Keel over and over and over again. So it's like Nick Redford. Nick Nick Redfern serves as John Keel's proxy for this film. Well, do we do we want to briefly talk about that a little? Like like not briefly. I think we should talk about it a whole lot. Uh, uh, Okay, all right. I mean, I just didn't know if we if there was anything else we need to get out of the way. Yeah, no. Uh, I think I mean the I I think the main thing is that um, you know my position uh, as a skeptic. uh, You know, we're a podcast that works with Skeptic Magazine, but I've always felt uh, that. I think it's absolutely fine that people have religion. I, you know, I grew up in a religious family. I'm not an anti-God person. I'm not an anti-religious person. I am a very pro-evidence person, and I don't think um, I, I think that the the usefulness of of using um, skeptical methodology to figure out whether things are really demonstrably true or testably true or not is important and critical thinking is important and i i find it unfortunate that this whole thing is also wrapped up in a big anti-evolution nutshell because um the uh i think there's very few scientific theories that have turned out to be so demonstrably reliable as uh, natural selection as an explanation for evolution. And uh, as a quick reminder for audience members who may not know it, the evolution itself was never really debatable, I, I think, prior to Darwin. Darwin was looking for a mechanism to explain it. He wasn't inventing evolution. Evolution already existed. His grandfather had talked about evolution. But what he did was came up with natural selection as a methodology to explain how, over time, selective pressures can cause change that looks like design. And it's interesting to me that that a group that's primarily focused on uh, procreation as not not procreation, but promoting yeah, that's, creationism. That's not their primary Let me focus. clear that up. <laughs> I think that that's their primary uh, uh, sort of focus. That they would hop into the alien hot tub and uh, want to have a swim with us is fascinating. So, 
And I'm not sure well, where that metaphor just went, but uh, that's well, not well, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, I think I'm, I, as an archaeologist, I always like to sort of look at things from a, let's, let's go to an origins. Um, if you watch any random documentary about, although maybe these days, maybe not so much, but in the past, and I, and I think still even today about UFOs, what would the origin be? Like what, what, what would be the. UFOs were first, blah, 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 blah. What, what would it prop, what would the sort of big it's popular Kenneth, it's take Kenneth on Arnold that? as the first, and then they June 24th, say, 1947. Yeah, and then they go back and say, oh, but there were also airships, and go back right. to the Bible and Ezekiel, right, yeah. But, but the, the thing, so, so the, the typical kind of, kind of perspective on this is you have this sudden emergence of this phenomenon of strange things seen in the sky that may have something to do with outer space, although it takes a few years for it to sort of go there. Uh, in the summer of 1947, specifically starting, as uh, Keelan was pointed out, on St. John's Day, St. John the Baptist Day, on June 24th, but, and I would love to turn this over to people who probably know a hell of a lot more about this than I do, the actual origins of all of this can uh, of what we call flying saucers and UFOs and many of the ideas that we see emerge after 1947 can all be found, you can all put your glasses in your hand, uh, in the late Victorian period and in sort of the movement known as theosophy, uh, which is sort of a reaction to modernity in some ways and in other ways it's not and it gets really complicated and I'd love you all to talk about it more than me. Um, that then kind of tracks through places like Maurice Doriol and Richard Shaver and, and gets up there. So uh, the reason I say this is the idea that you'd have psychical interests or what we'd call parapsychological or psychic mixed in with strange things in the sky, mixed in with weird places, mixed in with strange creatures is actually not new. And if anybody wants to jump in, Feel free. Yeah, a, a couple things. Um, you know, the, the the Christian attitude that these are just demons goes back to probably the seventies and is you know fairly mainstream in certain yeah. Christian movements. Hal Lindsey wrote a lot about this um, that the UFOs are the false miracles that's going to usher in the end times. Uh, what was different about this was I have never seen um, a, a Christian take on UFOs that gets into Jacques Vallée and John Keel. And what do you call the the puffed yeah. theory, the unified field theory? Uh, and there's some consequences to that. One of them is um, people like Hal Lindsey assumed UFOs have never happened before, and if they're happening now, it's because these are the end days. Interesting. In this film, they have to say, well, this has actually always gone on, right? Because there's always been uh, uh, demons. You mentioned, I think Blake mentioned Ezekiel, which is interesting. Ezekiel did not show up in this film. Yeah. Because that would have kind of thrown a monkey wrench into their claim that all anything that looks like an alien is demonic, right? Because they can't say the wheels that seen by the prophet Ezekiel were demonic. They have Because they're, they're angelic, right? They're yeah. angelic, right? Um, so that's interesting that that was sort of a, a left out. Interesting. The angel Gabriel and Muhammad showed up, as did, the, um, as did Joseph Smith. That's right. And, Wait, yeah. Well, what? Yeah, yeah, because these are you, you, it goes I think that tied into the nobody should add anything to the Bible approach, right? Like the original prophecies of the Bible are the Bible incomplete and anything that happens after that is entirely suspect, right? So this this thing basically argue that Gabriel and Muhammad is demonic and Joseph Smith is demonic. Not yes. them, but or that the, the revelations thereof. Yes. 
And right. they briefly Wonderful. swipe it at Scientology. And so really the film is putting all three of these religions in the same category of, Whoa, sort of so, so did, propaganda. When they talk about Scientology, tell me more about the Scientology that may actually get into some of what I, I would love to talk about. Tell me more what they talked about in the film. Well, so they, they're approaching ufology from what I would call a heresiological perspective, basically saying this is this is a false religion, right? They say it's a scientific theory. It's not. It's a false religion. And I mean, they actually make some good points uh, on that front. Some religion scholars might agree with them. Um, not that it's a false religion, but that it serves a kind of religious function in, in people's lives. And then they say, and we know that there are religions that have been started by contact with these entities, such as Scientology. And there's a slide very quickly of a Scientology temple um, I don't really think that's a, it's a accurate assessment of the history of Scientology. I think they were banking on the fact that people will have heard of this religion and they'll have a negative attitude about it. And this will sort of score points uh, with the audience. Down so the they road. didn't get into like, say, Jack Parsons. No, no. Because no. well, given that they got Redfern there. So so we, we'll probably come back to this, but but probably Nick Redfern's who's written a lot on UFOs and his big thing. He talks about like his I you know, he likes the idea that like things like. Nessie and Bigfoot may actually be psychic thought forms or spirit, not spirits, but more parapsychological than biological. But he wrote a book in 2010, I believe, called Final Events, where he argues that there has been this group inside the United States government, he calls the Collins elite, that have become eventually born again or evangelical Christians that pretty much buy into this worldview that UFOs, in fact, are demonological and that they intend to do something about it. And I actually, there's an episode of Sharon Hill's 15 Credibility Street. We talked about this at some length because that's what I do. How the recent revelation of and things related to it, I don't want to really get into this too hard unless it becomes an issue because there will be a rabbit hole of the Department of Defense recent UFO project actually lends some interesting credibility to the idea that such a group or groups like it or one could see how such groups might be in essence bouncing off of a longer term sort of parapsychological ufological sort of i like to use the word rolodex but sort of contact list of people you call people on the remote viewing thing and again this is getting into a rabbit hole so I've, let's leave it alone for the moment but that's why we keep bringing up in addition to him being the one who is not a primary religious apologist in the film, Nick Redfern. And final events is discussed explicitly in that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it is. It's in my notes. Okay, so yep. yep. Oh, so let's just let's let's talk about that then. Yeah. So tell us a bit. I mean, I still have not read Final Events, although after seeing this, I I've got. Well, what do they say in the film? What do they say in the film? I wrote down Final Events. Uh, look this up. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, super helpful, right? It was one of the. I know they make quotes from Redfern. Uh, he explicitly talked. About, he said, "I talked about this in Final Events." I believe is what he said. I can go back and get the exact quotes later. Uh, we'll Redfern names his source, who he said was a priest. And Ray Boucher. Ray, Ray Boucher. I've got that written down. I didn't. I didn't want to say it, but it's his final event. He's Ray been Boucher. in. He's been in Mufon. He's been yeah. a long-term UFO investigator, but he's also a priest. <laughs> they mm -hmm. say he was the head of. Um, Nebraska Mufon, I believe. Yeah, yeah. He was like a state director, yeah. Yeah. But he's not actually in the film. I've got a contact in Mufon. I don't want to talk much about this, but he said that it's an interesting mix of people, and there are people who, you know, who believe in the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and there's people who explicitly believe there's angels and demons involved. And yes, that is correct. I find that fascinating, but... um 
you know, it's so MUFON uh, is has been around the for mutual a long time. UFO network exactly. Uh, yeah, since the '70s, it basically arose out of the ashes of APRO. I think it was the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, yep. which sort of arose out of the ashes of NICAP, NICAP, which yep. was sort of for a long time the big UFO civilian bureau since the fifties. And so since the seventies and especially since the eighties, MUFON has been the sort of last man standing of UFO groups and the recent department of defense stuff. It has not been proven that government funding was directed towards them, but pretty much everybody's looked at the situation, looks at timelines and says, Robert Bigelow was funding them at points and here's when he got money from the government, and it's the same time, therefore, therefore, therefore. Yeah, so, there's a lot of interesting ties. You could draw lines all over the place. Yeah. So, so Final Events is brought up in the film. Yep. Interesting. Uh, so again, this book that, that Redford, and you can, feel, you can find a lot of podcasts and interviews and things he's done where he pretty much tells you a lot about the book out there. So you can just look this up everywhere. Uh, but basically, he makes the argument that, so in this guy, Ray Boucher, who is in MUFON, comes in and says, look, there's this group called the Collins Elite that has come to me and has told me that there are groups inside the United States government that are very involved in UFOs, but they have come to the conclusion that it is demonic. And some of them want to fight it, and some of them want to weapon exploit it. And then this all gets very Stranger Things. And then I, I want to uh, just inject here that the drinking game now switches to Tom Collins Elite, which is a regular Tom Collins, but you <laughs> add Midori. Ooh, okay. so, ooh, that's your call. That's if you your add call. Midori, it makes it green. Go for it. All right. So, oh, there you go. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. That, that's fair. Um, but he basically spins this tale, which I use the word spins a tale simply in the sense that he produces a narrative. I'm not actually putting a judgment on that. Um, that – uh, Jack Parsons, who is one of the co-founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, he was in the same social circles until things went sour with L. Ron Hubbard, which is why I brought him up at that point. And he was a follower of Aleister Crowley and the Ordi Templi uh, uh, is it Ordo Templi Orientalis, right. the, the, which again, I'm not the expert on this panel on. Um, but basically, Aleister Crowley's kind of spinoff from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and blah, 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 blah. Um, so the, one of the co-founders of JPL in the forties is also a hardcore interested in the esoteric occult scene in California. Uh, and Redfern argues that near the end of his life, cause he blows himself up. Uh, he's, he's, he's a major pioneer of rocketry in the United States. Uh, but near the end of his life, he starts wanting to offer his services to the newly founded nation of Israel. And he gives them a little too much when he's making sort of his job proposal too much in terms of potentially classified information. So there is an investigation and Redford in the book basically says the group of FBI and whoever that investigate him go, wait, he's hanging out with demon worshipers and wait, he's doing all these things and wait. And then they link this into alleged UFO stuff. And this begins this sort of Delta greenish kind of, group in the government and i have thoughts about some of this history that I, I think is not relevant to really get into but that's basically what redford is suggesting and then around the time of ronald reagan becoming president this group changes its perspective in redford's telling decides that things like abduction are demonic attacks that in essence we are a farm for demons eating our souls 
again, this is Redford telling the story. He was adamantly said multiple times he doesn't believe this. He just says he believes there's a group that says this and that this group was at one point sort of plotting various things to try to defend the United States with spiritual warfare. It's fascinating to me because I, I think when you look at all these, uh, well, think of it this way. When you look at government, I think most people think of sort of a, a monolithic long-term thing, uh, this, this organization, but it's made up of people. And each one of these individuals has their own belief systems. And it's really easy when you're thinking about these kind of stories to sort of put your own spin on it. I mean, the fact that you've got Ronald Reagan, he represents to some people this sort of ultimate, you know, macho American uh, tough guy. And then to other people, we see him as a uh, sort of a, a befuddled old man who, you know, relied on astrologers to get his information. And it, it's, it's, there's so many nuances to the individuals involved in these stories, but there's such a rich rich well of of material to form your own opinions on it, it's um it's really hard to kind of pin down what's really going on it reminds me of some of the better episodes of the x-files where you know you think you know what's going on and then there's a twist but what if it really means this and what if it really means that and i don't really know what it all means but i'm more inclined to think that uh, using sort of the same natural selection thing that that what's really going on is is we just get by. Like the sort of bozos who sort of make these decisions that sort of form our government, we just manage to get by. Like the fact that we're still around is kind of a, remarkable because a lot of really strange people with weird beliefs are really making things work. Well, given the events of this weekend, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that we are all still alive is impressive. Um, so, so – Joe and Natasha, you both mentioned that in the film, this was the first time you had really seen, as you mentioned, like John Keel and, and Jacques Vallée. And I think for what we're talking about, that's I think that's actually really important. Could you talk about that a little more? Like in not not the first time you've ever seen them, but first time you've ever seen them in relation to these ideas. Yeah. So I mean, usually when I see Christians talking about UFOs, they they say that they're demons, kind of just to get it out of the way. Yeah. You know? So it's just kind of just like, don't pay attention to UFOs. Those are just demons. And this was different. These were two people, Guy Malone and Joe Jordan, um, who were really part of the UFO culture. And then it appears that they became kind of born again uh, uh, afterwards. And so Interesting. Interesting. There was kind of um, what in religious studies we sometimes call hybridity, right, where two mm -hmm. different traditions begin to resemble each other. I have literally edited a volume and ran a conference on hybridity. So it's a thing yeah. that I'm up to the gills on. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, I see this a little bit as a, as a case study in hybridity because um, the, the, uh, one of the narrators begins saying you know, how annoyed he is when people like the aliens say, oh, well, Jesus was really just an advanced alien right, who came to give us wisdom. And so I see this kind of turning it around where the kind of Christianized ufology weirdly mirrors groups that have been doing this ufologized Christianity. yes. Uh, uh, for a while, and it's a kind of you got chocolate in my peanut butter, right? I, well, uh, yeah, well, a, a that's sort of, sort of blending of, of ideas. Heaven's Gate, I, Heaven's Gate was like that. They, I mean, they had their whole uh, the Luciferian actions of these aliens uh, versus the the good uh, level above human approach, right? So exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Quick, but before before we go further, I, I would like to mention that when you're talking about hybridity and you're talking about aliens, I want to be clear: we're not talking about alien hybrids, which is 
right. <laughs> a different yeah, thing well, altogether. I mean, I, I'd be very curious here. From my perspective, hybridity is basically it's as an archaeologist, as a student of social this, that, and the other. It's a very valuable concept, although it's a contested concept, or people have issues with it. But basically, a recognition, a recognizing. Uh, recognition, that's what I'm looking for, that uh, so much of culture is actually made in the interstitial spaces in between things. Uh, and, and that, you know, the idea that, oh, there's a cultural norm over here. It's like, well, in reality, a lot of things are mixed up and actually you understand the structures of society and the structures of global society by looking at that mixing up. Is that is that sort of what y'all are talking about? Yeah, we used to use the term uh, syncretism, talking yes. about religious traditions, and I decided, well, hybridity is better because that implies a kind of agency, that this doesn't yes. just happen by accident. And you can really see that agency when you see these Christians kind of reading John Keel and sort of— And often a subversive agency, often a subversion of existing concepts. Right. So this kind of polemical reading of people like Valet and Keel and sort of seeing what here is useful to us and what are we going to have to kind of sweep under the rug to make our arguments. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, the, the the thing I find particularly interesting. So you all mentioned, you know, that that they didn't mention Ezekiel, but you all were like, but they should because they're pulling this from ancient aliens or ancient astronauts or the term I use in my book, ancient extraterrestrials, because no one's trademarked it. <laughs> um, but uh, Ezekiel's always brought up there. But as you all pointed out, you can't call that demonic if you're wanting to say this is all demonic. Blah blah blah. And I think what you're finding there, and this is one of the beauties when you, when, for example, I look at material culture that's hybrid, is when you can find trace markers. When you can find, uh, there's a term that we use uh, that is on the tip of my tongue, and I'll come back to it when, I, when it when it pops in my head. A brief interjection. The term Jeb was trying to remember is skeuomorphism. 
he wrote me after the interview to say that when elements transfer from a design in one medium to a design in another, even though they aren't purely functionally needed, that's skeuomorphism. Things like attempts at preserving elements of a desktop or books or newspapers, etc., in a computer interface. There are tons of examples in archaeology, including rivets on ceramics that were modeled after metal buckets. And we now return to the conversation. When something survives in one material into another kind of medium, and it's really bugging me, I can't think of it right now, but uh, you're, you're seeing this here where you all expect Ezekiel. It should be there if you're looking at things that are reinterpreted from a UFO perspective, but you can't do it over over here for the reasons that you brought up. And I think that's what's happening with Keel. So John Keel, he... <sighs> He's often depicted as a respectable reporter, like a journalist, in the 1950s and 60s that then gets wrapped up in UFOs and weird shitology and so on uh, around his most famous book, The uh, Mothman Prophecies, uh, involving the incidents around 1967 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, that he writes the book, and I want to say it's 75 where he was not the first person to sort of para, to to pioneer this idea of a sort of unified field theory that these things he called himself a demonologist and he didn't mean that in a theological sense but he sort of did that was quoted uh, extensively in the film yeah oh really mm-hmm. from Operation Trojan Horse yeah yes, yep, which I am yep, literally reading right now I I, uh, I have not I had not read it before and I'm, I'm reading it right now I'd read some of his other works in reality Keel if you read his first book Jadu which has not been easily found until recently like it's it's not lost but it was not as easy you could find Operation Trojan Horse you could find the Mothman prophecies good luck finding J. Du until we've now gotten into the era of, of easy self-publishing. He started looking for magic. I mean, you could pretty much just put Max Weber in the index and index most pages. Uh, I mean, he literally talks about the lost magic of the landscape that is about to be swept away by industrial civilization. So he goes to the Middle East and Egypt and India to find it. And that's how he starts. So... The fact that he then pretty much in every one of his works brings in this concept of finding magic in the landscape, finding spirits in the landscape, finding a sort of not anti-science but extra science in the landscape. Well, it is anti-science in places. is not surprising. He then becomes the darling of sort of UFO intelligentsia, him and Jacques Vallée. Uh, and since Vallée was brought in, do you all want to talk about like who Jacques Vallée is or was, well, he is, he's still alive, unlike John Keel. I know him as a UFO researcher, but he was also a uh, IT guy. He was a... He, he started as an early, like, uh, he's now a venture capital. He started doing early statistics, early computer stuff. But I want to say around 65, 1965, he decided to start applying his statistic, his statistical background to UFO sightings. He came up with a few interesting things and then two years later was like, actually, they're fairies. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. He writes the book called Passport to Magonia, which is, I think, literally written one year after Mothman. It's not involved with Mothman, but it's all in the same era. Uh, and it's four years or five years before Mothman Prophecies, where he goes back and he reads tons of the first occupant UFO reports that are not 
obviously contactee angelic. So when we use the word contactee, we're talking about basically since around 1950-51, people, many of whom who had a background in theosophical lodges, other esoteric pursuits, they meet often very white, Nordic, tall. These are names they give. And some of them were actually Nazi sympathizers. Others were not in the desert and say, oh, here's a new revelation. But you start having in the middle of the 1950s reports in France and then in South America and then in the United States and elsewhere of people seeing little people collecting flowers and doing weird things outside of flying saucers and then running away. Valet in his book in 1968, uh, Passport of Magonia, catalogs these, analyzes these and says these are almost the same if not the same as – and then he pulls out a huge amount of – of early modern, late medieval to early modern stories from Europe of fairies involving people who are taken away by the fairies. This is when abduction is beginning to become a thing in ufology. People that have missing weird time, people that have strange events and so on. And Valet basically makes the argument, and this is the sort of bedrock of what I call the puff, the Paramount Unified Field Theory. These things, and Keel makes the same argument, these things are normal to this planet. They are not from outer space in 1945 because we blew up nuclear bombs. They've been here forever. They're older than us, and they're strange, and we don't understand them. Yeah. Which then kind of fits demons if you want to go that way. Yeah, it does. And also, I think most people would know, weirdly, they would know Valet through his proxy, which was uh, as what Claude Lacombe, Lacombe in uh, yeah, there, there's, a, there's some dispute whether that's really based on him or not. But yeah. Valet was one of the people that Spielberg was reading yeah. when yeah. he created Close, Close Encounters, Encounters of the, of the Third, Third Kind, kind. right? Yeah. Which, and they, you do and, get a, a Heineck. Uh, well, and J. Allen Heineck, yeah. by the end of his life, had basically come over to a parapsychological slash sort of quasi-occultish perspective on UFOs as well, to be honest. So uh, I know we're going to keep talking about uh, uh, sort of is ufology a religion? That's one of the – is the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis a religion? You religious studies people, what's a religion? Wow. So when I teach, so when I teach uh, world religions at Texas State, uh, one of the assignments I have my students do is to create a definition of religion. Um, they have to do it three times throughout the semester. Uh, and this is really be- – to, to kind of demonstrate that there is no inherent definition to religion, that we create working definitions based upon uh, the data that we have. Uh, and so, and that's how I would answer it. Uh, well, the reason I ask is because I, th- I think it, it, over the course of Monster Talk, I've talked to a lot of different people about religion because religion crosses into monsters in a lot of interesting ways. And, and one of the things that, that seems, uh, I, I guess, in modern in, in modern times, uh, for, especially within Christianity, religion is about a faith. It's what you believe. But that didn't seem like it was always the case. Religion was sometimes what you do. It was the actions you take and, and the sort of uh, practices that you have. And, and maybe it's a hybrid of that. But Well, there's, um, there's a, one theoretical model thinking about religion that says that there are religions that are more based on orthodoxy, so what you believe, and religion is more based on orthopraxy, what you, you do. And this is how you determine who is in or not in the religion. Yeah. Um, 
And I think there's a really interesting divide, a very interesting kind of theoretical tool that can be used to think about religions. Um, another one that I was thinking about, you guys are talking about this puffed theory, is the idea of a sacred canopy. And this was made by sociologist Peter Berger. Is that like uh, the, the hors d'oeuvre? <laughs> That's a canopy. That's a canopy. <laughs> very different. So the sacred canopy, and Joe can jump in if he uh, can explain this a little bit better than I can, but the sacred canopy is the idea that uh, religion is a way to organize the world, that we are bombarded by information at all times, and that religion is a way to kind of make categories and to put things uh, in their place, and that you kind of exist under this large sacred canopy, and that to be in a religion is to say, say, oh, I know where to put this new phenomenon I just saw. It goes into this category. Um, and so in many ways, the idea of puffed, I think, is in some ways making a sacred canopy out of this, saying that all of this data is actually interconnected, interwoven. Um, I don't know. No, I could definitely say that. Like yeah. Disagree with me. So maybe. Yeah. No, that was. Good. I thought that was that was great, Natasha. Um, so in religious studies, we know that religion is what we call a second order category, meaning it's not something that exists out in the world. It's something that we make up and we decide what goes in the category and, and what doesn't. And there's not a perfect definition of what gets lumped in the category and, and what isn't. Um, but one of the things I try to impress on my undergraduates is it's important that we are fair about what the rules are when we talk about what is or is not a religion because there's something at stake. So uh, in San Marcos, where Natasha and I teach, there was someone on the city council who in her tweets was saying that uh, Harry Potter is a religion. And so it is unconstitutional to have Harry Potter books in public schools. But Islam is not a religion. And so Muslims do not have any constitutional rights. Um, and so that's the kind of gaming the system that, that goes on, which is why theories of religion are important. And to the credit of these filmmakers, Gary Bates is the filmmaker. He actually says, I define religion as having the following three characteristics. Yeah. And he defines it in terms of answering questions, right? Where do we come from? What are we doing? What happens when we die? So he is at least fair, right? That he says, these are the rules of the game. And by these rules, ethology is a religion. So, yeah. Uh, so I, I, the reason I ask is because they treated within that film, they treated religion, uh, ufology, ufology as though it were religion, uh, it, it, or it seemed to me that they did. Uh, and, um, uh, it f tied in so nicely with the Keel ultra-terrestrial hypothesis. So Keel, even though he viewed himself as a demonologist, I, I didn't get the feeling in any of the things I've read. Of course, I still haven't read this Operation Trojan Horse yet. But I didn't get the feeling that he was necessarily prescribing any sort of protection from these things. Oh, was, God, no. Yeah, no, he, he was no. just saying, here, whatever this is, it's not of this world. So, yeah. so John Keel basically suggests we all are living in a horror novel. Oh, Nice. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't literally say that, but his is a dark world of, at best, tricksters, and at worst, things that eat us, Ooh. spiritually or otherwise. Oh, that fits in nicely with the fairies, doesn't it? Yeah, the 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 the, the fair folk. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's his world. Yeah, yeah. He he does he has no he the the in his world. Like if you read his Mothman prophecies, there's all these contactees, but. The aliens, or whatever the hell they are that they're he's they're talking to, lie, and lie in not good ways. So I mean, the 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 famous beginning and end. Everybody forgets at the very beginning of the movie, not, well, not the movie. The they did make a movie, which is interesting. Uh, but the beginning of the book of the Mothman prophecies, he tells you, by the way, this is all about this bridge collapse, which killed forty six people, and then he writes this amazing book. 
I'm not saying it's true, but as a book, it's really good. There's a reason it's famous. It's creepy. Um, and at the end, you've forgotten this, and then there's this bridge collapse. And all throughout, he's having all of these people in his sort of network. So he's going on the Long John Nebel show, which is sort of the predecessor to Art Bell, which is the predecessor to George Norris, which is the predecessor to the entire History Channel. Um, <laughs> and, and, and contactees are saying, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And he's freaking out about there's going to be some horrible disaster, and he's thinking it's a nuclear war or a or, giant power or, outage or the or Pope's going to be assassinated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then this bridge collapses in this town that he's been visiting for 13 months as he writes it. Uh, I have seen letters, like original letters in Point Pleasant of John Keel. I don't know what he believed, but I mean, there's literally scrawled in the sides of these typewritten letters to people, I think something's bad's going to happen. Like, he's not entirely bullshitting people. Like, I've like, seen those letters too, and I believe uh, Linda Scarborough. Oh, yes, yeah, absolutely. You would have. Yes. You, you wrote a fantastic too. article on the whole Point Pleasant Mothman stuff. Yeah, but he he did tell her, I think, the men in black, which kind of emerged partly out of the Mothman story, are after your baby. Um, so really? You have kind of changeling lore there. And he actually oh did tell her, I think if you hang a gold cross up, this will help keep the men in black away. So he did occasionally make those sorts of suggestions. But not as publications. This was a letter to a friend, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, but he is very in this, and, and I'd love to hear if, if you'd agree with that. I, I would see that Keel sees a sort of a demon haunted world. I mean, and when he says a demonologist, he doesn't mean that he's, he's not suggesting that he's, he's, um, uh, the Warrens. He's not Earl of the rain. He's not saying he's an actual demonologist. He's just basically saying this is a demon haunted world. And that's what I've been studying for the last 40 years, but he does mean it with that sort of menace. Yeah, I, I would say. And, yeah. and you know, the thing about this film, I think groups like Creation Ministries and Answers in Genesis are very good at cherry picking, right, and finding people who have authority on a particular topic and homing in on the one quote that really makes their point and sort of sweeping other things under the rug. Keel in the Mothman Prophecies basically suggests that uh, the ancient Israelites were being tricked by the entities. Yeah. Right? And that the Ark of the Covenant has these electrical powers because it's yeah. basically a machine the entities told them to build. Uh, of course, none of that is going to show up in the Alien Intrusion movie. Other <laughs> uh, than that, Keel's ideas are kind of held up as, as being uh, sort of good research that leads us closer to the truth of what these entities are. Well, and that's the thing. In reading, in reading Nick Redfern's final events, like – I, I, again, because of the recent revelations about the DOD and more sort of thinking about and seeing who's involved, I'm like, you know, maybe he's describing an actual group of some kind in, and in sort of their interaction with more parapsychological Yuri Geller-led, Hal Putoff, John Alexander groups inside, inside the government. But the thing is, at one point, the sort of leap that he suggests this Collins elite made only kind of makes sense – like that, the fact that they would have seen Crowley and his his contact with this spirit called Lamb, which has only in recent times been allegedly tied into gray aliens and blah blah. Basically, the point is parts of it only make sense if you actually know your ufology stuff, and they have to sort of sand parts off to put it in here. But that's been done, or allegedly been done i have i have the page by the way for the alien intrusion thing up and i I, it is guy malone and i'm looking at the credits and i see nick redfern 
I see a person named Johnny Hunt. I don't know who that is. The next one is Norio Hayakawa. So did he show up in the film? Yes. He did. Yes. What was his role in the film? I'm curious. Um, I have a reason for asking. Uh, he was, if I remember correctly, and I, I could verify this later, but I, I believe he was along the same lines talking about the uh, – uh, I don't remember if he explicitly made any religious comments, but he seemed to be paralleling the comments from the guy from uh, from Korea that, that the mm-hmm. what, whatever the physical explanation of aliens is, it, it's not necessarily extraterrestrial craft. Therefore, it yes. fits in with the demon hypothesis. I remember thinking during the film that he was like the more reasonable gentleman. Yeah. Like he was a more reasonable reflection of the gentleman from South Korea. So Norio Hayakawa's primary calling card within ufology, and I think he's sort of backed off this a little, has been he was for a long time the primary per- person interested in studying the Dulce, the, the Dulce legend. Do you all know the Dulce legend? That's the uh, secret military base beneath the uh, Dulce. Uh, yeah, the Archelada, the Archelada yeah. mountain mountain ridge in northwestern New Mexico that is tied into Paul Benowitz, all these other things. But basically, there's this legend that appears to have been at least partly seeded, potentially by a member of the Air Force in the 1980s, uh, Richard Doty, but into the ufological, and that gets really complicated, but of a horrifying underground and I'm just going to say we've been talking about religion and demons just listen to everything I'm about to say a horrifying underground base where there are humans and aliens that have made a pact and they kidnap people and they do horrible horrible experiments on large numbers of people and this emerges in the late 70s early 80s um, and that literally level six is referred to as the hell level because of all the terrible things that are done to people there. And in reality, while the government made this pact, according to the legend, everything went horribly wrong. The aliens double crossed them and they've been there for far longer and there's deeper, deeper levels that the humans don't have access to. And eventually they killed all the humans or there were a bunch of them killed in a, in a, in a firefight. And now it's this, it's pretty much hell uh, under New Mexico. And so Dulce has become this very sort of infamous thing that most ufologists don't think there's necessarily a lot to, but it's a kind of beacon on what uh, I believe Jerome Cart called the the dark side sort of theoretical approach to UFO conspiracy theory. The fact that they're talking to him is fascinating. And Christopher Partridge, who's a religion scholar, has an oh, yes. basically looking at how um, when this phenomenon begins in the 50s, the aliens are very angelic. There are space brothers. I think Carl Jung called them technological angels. And then by the period that you're talking about, it's the opposite, right? They're demons. Yeah. They live underground. They torture people. Uh, and, and Partridge, I think, kind of suggests that you know Christianity has just permeated our culture so thoroughly um, that this is just sort of naturally the way that these legends are going to, uh, to take shape. And I, I, I think he's not wrong. I also, though, as we've sort of all been, I think, kind of nosing around, I think that it's going both ways. Uh, and I'm, one of my favorite authors is Michael Barkun and his discussion of sort of forbidden knowledge and uh, the idea that once you have some ideas in kind of conspiracy culture and in the cultic milieu, they all start to, well, they start to hybridize like we've been talking about. Um, 
and these ideas coming from people like Keel and coming from people like Valet and frankly, I'll just drop this here because we know I was going to go there, coming from their ancestors, people like Charles Fort and people like the fiction writer H.P. Lovecraft of a demon-haunted ancient aliens world are influencing the other side. And I would say that the two are, are sort of influencing each other, which is how you end up with Norio Hayakawa and Nick Redfern in a Christian apologetic UFO demon documentary. Yeah, I mean, one thing that, uh, you know, some theologians have said about the kind of fundamentalists movement and its claims that the earth is 5,000 years old and biblical inerrancy, which are both positions of uh, Creation Ministries International, uh, is that this has kind of changed what Christianity is about, right? It's taken um, a, a text that has many meanings and it's kind of actually said, um, well, really, this is about history and cosmology and geology. And that's kind of the most important thing to it. So yeah. while these movements present themselves as being very conservative, they're actually it's something very new, right? That's a very new way of reading the yeah. Bible and interpreting what it's say. And I think we're seeing something similar. So just as the fu fundamentalism really begins in the beginning of the 20th century in response to Darwin yeah. and so-called higher criticism of, of the Bible, and it sort of makes this new form of Christianity that's very concerned with kind of the discourse of science and the authority of science that didn't exist before. And we may be seeing a similar move now, right? Where we're seeing this kind of new brand of Christianity that is about theories of the paranormal. And, and it, it sort of begins to look increasingly like the people that it is um, in dialogue with. Yeah, and, and if you throw in into this conspiracy theory, which is never far behind these topics, all of this starts to get very political also. Well, yeah, that's there. I, I, I guess one of the things that I am curious about is uh, you've got – this is an easy way for a, sort of an evangelical foothold or, or at least an incursion into the ufology world. Uh, you know, to, It's a big production. I mean, I don't know what it costs exactly, but I, this was not a small thing. And I, I don't know – if it's going to have an effect because they didn't have people there, you know, I didn't see John three sixteen come up on screen. You know, I, I some of the classic sort of things I would have expected an evangelical conversion sort of approach, I didn't see. But what I did see was a straight up, hey, you know, if you're a Christian, you should be concerned about ufology. You should care because this is the work of demons, right? Um, so I don't know how it works as outreach, but I am curious as to how it works as far as latching itself into this mix. Because there's no orthodoxy here as far as that goes. This is another example of, I guess, using your term hybridism, where you're taking something, you're, they're glomming into something that, that's not really a religion and trying to like pick out the pieces they like. Well, and, and Barcoon's yeah. term for that is, is, is improvisational apocalypticism. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't, it didn't feel apocalyptic, but it definitely felt like, um, oh, it felt like a war, like, I don't know what the right word is for that, but it, it felt like this was a pitting us versus them, whatever they are. But it actually was unusual to me how not apocalyptic it was. I assumed Christians talking about UFOs is going to be, this is a sign of the end times. We've right. got, yeah. you know, maybe a year left, and, and I didn't see that. So, so that does suggest this is something new. And this could be, again, maybe Keel and people like Keel, the this is a permanent part of our reality kind of effect, possibly. 
I think you're right. Yeah, I think if they they've accepted Keelan Ballet enough to think that this is more or less normal, this isn't some new dispensation that began in 1947 signaling the end times. It's it's more or less okay and and, and normal. So going back to my personal feelings on this it is I I don't personally mind people trying to deal with uh, what I would suspect is sleep paralysis in a variety of ways. If, if, if you have sleep paralysis problems and praying helps you with it, great, you know, <laughs> but I don't, I, you know, my personal experience was it wasn't effective. <laughs> so I, well, I, I'd like to see some clinical trials on that or something. I, I just don't know. I mean, it's the kind of, it's kind of the, the, I think the harm here is that if you tell people that if they say, you know, the name of Jesus Christ and it will drive away uh, these alien invaders that, that are actually demons and then it doesn't work, then it becomes, they, they even threw in the, you know, real Christians versus the just oh, wow. walk the walk versus oh, talk the talk kind of people. Well, and, the one thing I do want to add yeah. here is <clears throat> that's been a, that is not a new idea. Like that has, there has, there has been for, I would say at least 20 years, this sort of dialogue within the kind of abductee community that, oh, the author. So they'll point at, you know, there was at one point the sort of the trifecta of abductee res. There were others, but there was, there was John Mack, the Harvard psychologist. Um, oh God, I'm, I'm forgetting his name. Bud Hopkins. Bud Hopkins, yep. They were both and, in there. And David Jacobs. Now David Jacobs is the one of those three that's still alive and he's talked about hybrid invasions. Bud Hopkins was, was sort of your X-Files, like medical experimentation aliens, and John Mack was more, they're here to warn us about ecological disaster. But there was always this undercurrent within the abduction community that if you if you said the Lord's Prayer or if you invoke Jesus, it would end this. And this is not new. And there was always the idea that the abduction people are not talking about this. So this was the dirty secret. Hmm. I never could get it to work, but I, you know, that was just my experience. <laughs> well, we do know that Bud Hopkins would hypnotize people, and sometimes they would recall details that he thought just didn't fit, and yeah. so he would just delete them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, apparently, this element was one that all three of them allegedly, and again, this is something I've heard, were like, oh, let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that at all. Yeah. Um, and if you go back to, was it Betty Andreessen, who's often considered the second or third kind of on the record alien abductee in American culture, uh, her visions or whatever you want to call them were fairly explicitly religious in nature, unlike say Betty and Barney Hill, but hers were, and that goes back to the early seventies, late sixties, I think late sixties of the Betty Andreessen case. The Joe Jordan's talk about the talk, the talk versus walk, the walk Christians was also interesting. There was this um, great book called Paranormal America mm -hmm. uh, by uh, the sociologist who, who at Baylor who crunched these numbers from the Baylor Religion Survey that asked about uh, paranormal topics, including aliens. And one thing they found was that um, religious people are more likely to believe in paranormal topics, uh, but that regular church attendance correlates negatively Right, so the ideal person to report a paranormal experience would be someone who is religious but doesn't attend church regularly. In other words, a talk the talk but not a walk the walk Christian. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting that, that he was finding that pattern as, as well. Well, I guess that makes me ask then. So you've been talking about like sort of hooks in and outreach. What is the ultimate purpose from what you can tell of this film? Is it to 
get people who are interested in UFOs? Is it to explain to people why UFOs are demonic? What's the sort of the purpose of this particular film? From Again, from what you can tell. Honestly, I think part of it is CMI had this painful split with Answers in Genesis. Answers in Genesis has the Creation Museum. They have the Noah's Ark thing. I think partly they just thought we want market share. We want something to compete. So they, they want to get into pop. So they're seeing this as sort of a pop culture outreach. I, I think, yeah, more than anything, this is sort of just this is a way to get on the map. And Answers in Genesis can't do it. Only we can do it. We've got this, this book that people are reading. Let's, let's take a chance on this. Um, I also think this was an attempt to sort of be the apostle to the sci-fi geeks, um, particularly by having the narrator emphasize his credentials as, you know, being on the show Smallville. Um, so I, I think the end, and they sort of thought this is another angle we can take uh, towards discrediting the Big Bang Theory and evolution, right? If, if we can yeah. get you to think UFOs are demons, maybe we can get you to think that these are false uh, scientific theories as well. Well, I think, and going back to the idea of the sacred canopy that we talked about before, I mean, this is a way of like, uh, for CMI, a very demonstrably showing, look, Christianity can explain this. And these people are now part of our sacred canopy. Aliens don't challenge us. We have engulfed them into our um, idea and our worldview. And that, is, and that very much fits with what I saw in person with the alien resistance thing, like they were not afraid to let these people in and talk, you know, it was like, go ahead. We've got this covered. And I think at the end of the film, Gary Bates says, and I think he was being very honest about this. He says, it, it grieves me that people have these, these problems with aliens and they don't think to come to the church, right? We are the ones who should be equipped to help you if you're having this kind of problem. And we need to sort of let people know that, that we are the place you should go to not, I don't know what else he was thinking. The History Channel, uh, paranormal websites, right? Something, something well, like that. That's that's the canopy piece that, again. That is an excellent insight, I think, because you see a lot of the. So we haven't mentioned, but if you're interested at all in ancient alien stuff at all, obviously go check out Jason Colavito's blog. Uh, but he has documented really well that there is that. Often, in many times, the the great enemy sort of in the kind of populist response to ancient alien stuff is not mainstream science. I mean, they all kind of poo-poo that, but it's it's literally what we're talking about, sort of a, a demonic or a religious conspiratorial mindset versus this ancient alien's mindset. And I think the thing that really pointed this out, there was, there was this film that many of my students are actually very familiar with, a YouTube-focused film called Ancient Aliens Debunked, and it's gotten millions upon millions of views. But it was coming from a religious perspective, but it was not advertised as such until you watch it and you realize it's invoking the deluge and giants. But I think that actually really pointed out that in many senses, the potential audience for both of those cells, if you want to put it that way, uh, are the same people or potentially the same people. Yeah, that, and I I think many many great arguments were made in that video. Uh, but you're right; they most did, of it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Until they're like, also, by the way, the flood's real. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> I, I, so it, I, I'm, I'm not envious, but I, I do understand that the the ultra terrestrial hypothesis is a a, a perfectly 
rational way to deal with the fact that there's no physical evidence for the things that many people are experiencing. And, and it, it can sort of explain away why we have no evidence, because these things are coming from another dimension. And the reality is that the, the skeptical alternative, which I've been calling the null-terrestrial hypothesis, is there's nothing there. Everything that we're having is people misunderstanding phenomena, misunderstanding things that they're seeing. You know, it's problems of human perception, not problems of things that we just don't understand, right? Or not even problems. I would say features. Feature, maybe or they're aspects. Features, but they're, aspects. It's not as exciting, uh, but it, it fits into a world where you can actually test things and it comes out, you know... I, on balance. No, no. I mean, if, yeah. if you believe you live in a magical spirit and demon and trickster haunted world, yeah, there's a certain aspect of like, again, re-enchantment. Yeah. No, it's very exciting and magical. I just don't think it's real. So, but it, but it, I am concerned about its market share in the in the in the uh, psyche of you know pop culture. I, and what's <laughs> I think maybe one of the most ironic things is that uh, if if natural selection is real, which I think it is, that the idea of uh, sort of uh, Dawkins's mimetics means that what will end up coming out of this will be the parts that people like will stick and the parts that people don't want, and you'll end up with a hybridization that will, in, in at least somewhere, become a new view of uh, the role of religion as ties into ufology. Maybe not new, but at least it'll have evolved, right? So uh, what could be more bizarre and fitting than that, that the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the anti-evolution evolution people themselves are actually demonstrably showing how ideas can evolve <laughs> over time. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, pre I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm just going to answer with, I'm not sure it was demons, but it, it was demons. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty much where I'm going there. I, I noticed we've been talking for like an hour and 15 minutes and I, I do have to edit a little bit out, but I, I do like to keep the episodes around 60 minutes. Is there anything mm -hmm. you guys would like to add that we haven't sort of naturally uh, segued into? I can't think of much. I mean, this has been actually very informative for me. I was mostly a, a bystander to this, and Joe tends to drag me to all sorts of crazy things. And so Woo. he promised me there'd be a you know pint of beer afterwards nice. if I yes. came to this with him. That's the way to do it. I did mine up front. I should have done it afterwards. That would have been very smart. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say don't take your significant other to this film. Yeah, 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 no. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, no, I was so glad I took a friend instead of a wife. Yeah, no, but, you know, good on you too, right? <laughs> if we if we had a movie theater in town, I might have seen it, but I'd have to get in a car in the snow, so I did not see it. The only thing I would, I would add to this is I will try to watch this when it comes to a place that I can actually see it, because I am actually very, very curious. Yeah, I, I, I think you'll agree, though, it should have been about 30 minutes shorter, so... I think everything should be shorter when it comes to media. <laughs> so I know it's shorter. Just it just kept going. Oh, dear. I was so bored. Oh, I'm so sorry. I you're, appreciate you're, you going, though. Not you're highly trooper. selling it. I'm just saying, and that's probably fair. Well, I, I, I'm one of those people who went to see Expelled with Ben Stein. Wow. And so I see, I, I've still never seen that. I do have something that. positive to say about this movie. It didn't go full Hitler, so good for them. <laughs> <laughs> Ben Stein's little film ended with a giant Poe argument. I was like, mm, oh, come on. Not, is that Poe or is that the other? It was Godwin's, right? Sorry, Godwin's. Godwin, yeah, yeah God, Godwin, so, Godwin argument. Yeah. 
No. Uh, no. So there was no Nazi bell. There was no the, no, 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 the, the no. Glocke. Relatively Nazi free. So good for them. <laughs> well, then I don't know if they'll make it on the history. Well, these days I'll make it on the history channel. Yeah. So awesome. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming and spending some time on Sunday evening. And I really appreciate you guys coming back to talk to me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. No. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard a roundtable discussion with religious studies experts Natasha Mickles and Joe Laycock and archaeologist Jeb Card as we talked about the connection between John Keel's ultra-terrestrial hypothesis, or the UTH, and the new film Alien Intrusion, a creationist film tying evangelical Christianity into ufology. I do not know if the UTH is really gaining market share or if my increasing recognition of it in paranormal literature is merely confirmation bias. But it seems to be popping up more and more, and perhaps someone with the time and academic training can see if a literature survey supports my suspicion. What concerns me is that the UTH is unfalsifiable. We've talked about this before, using Karl Popper's idea that in order for an idea to be considered scientific, it needs to be testable and falsifiable. The UTH, by its very nature, is untestable. It is the invisible magic dragon that Carl Sagan talked about in his book, The Demon Haunted World. As such, I hope that serious enthusiasts of the paranormal and cryptozoological will continue to reject it as the research dead end it truly is. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed in this show are those of myself and my respective guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. I'm not responding to anything that's happening right now. <laughs> that's but, fantastic. Uh, so. Yeah, we're, we're editing also all of what we just talked about. Okay, great. Got it. <laughs>